at Henry's Uncle as a 501c3 nonprofit, we rely on your donations. Any amount helps, $1, $5, $10, whatever it may be. If you would like to donate, hit up our Patreon account, Henry's Uncle, or go to henrysuncle.org and uh, you can donate through there. Again, any amount helps and we truly appreciate your support. Today, we have the honor of having Haven Wheelock on our show and we talk about the hot button words of harm reduction and what that means how it helps our community does it enable drug users or does it not and we also talk about uh, safe consumption sites even wheelock welcome thanks we are very excited to have you here today um you're someone I have seen in the news growing up, born and raised here in Portland. I have huh. seen in the news probably, I could be exaggerating for the last 20 years or at least close. So I've been doing harm reduction work for almost 20 years. Okay. I've been only doing it here in Portland for 13. Okay, so, close. Yeah, so. A good, more than 10. Yeah. Not quite 20. It's a long time. Yeah. So you have. We're generous when we round up. <laughs> Um, yeah, so when I uh, uh, finally got to meet you at the Opioid Town Hall mm -hmm. um, a couple months ago, I was, one, you were sitting right in front of me. Um, I really wanted to talk to you because I wanted you on because you are, you see this, you're on the front lines every single day um, from, you know, what Outside In does, uh, serving, you know, the, the, the community and what you do. Um, it's incredible. So I'm really, really excited to have you here and pick your brain about everything and, and, uh, educate the audience about harm reduction. Thanks. Because that is where I'm going to steer this conversation because that is such a hot topic right now. Mm -hmm. um, with this epidemic occurring, uh, nothing seems to be very, you know, working very well in terms of on the system side. Um, it seems, uh, you know, all the regulations that are in place trying, you know, it seems like uh, the war on drugs, everything like that. Um, and when we start talking about you know, uh, needle exchange programs. We start talking about safe consumption sites, all that. It becomes a very hot topic because then we start talking about enabling. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I want to kind of lead this conversation. I know it's going to go into many different other things as well. But, um, you know, so for, uh, to start off, you can talk about uh, how you got into harm reduction. Uh, I've been doing it for 20 years and how you got into outside in and, and what uh, your program does. Yeah, so... Yes, those are two different questions. What does outside in do and what do I do? Um, <laughs> so let's start with kind of how I got there, yep. I guess. So I actually started in this work in high school in 1998. Um, I was a peer educator working around HIV. And so I was educating my classmates about HIV prevention and all of that. And so the idea of harm reduction really started in the HIV stuff. Mm -hmm. That's where... It all began. And what so, drew you to that? As like a high schooler, becoming a peer educator, <laughs> talking about HIV. To be honest, I wanted to piss off my parents who didn't want me talking about sex and drugs. Okay. <laughs> um, Easy enough. To be like, I mean, to me, it was just like a rebellion against my Catholic family who um, I wanted to talk about sex and drugs. And I thought mm -hmm. it was really important. And I also had a dear friend who at that time was fighting to get the medications for HIV. Mm. Um, he was a... We were both regulars in the same coffee shop. So I started learning about HIV from him as he was fighting with his insurance to get the medication. Yeah. Because um, there was medication at that point, but he 
couldn't get it because of insurance. And so he started doing peer education and asked if I would be interested. And I said, yes, because who doesn't want to talk about sex and yeah. drugs? Cause it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that's kind of where it started. And then I moved to New York city. There was some misspent youth thing happening for a minute. And then I moved to New York city and started working for a syringe exchange there really quickly after I moved actually, and okay. fell in love with it. I fell in love with the people who use drugs, I fell in love with the work itself and mm -hmm. the mission of really trying to stop the spread of HIV. Um, and really, I've just been doing it ever since. Um, I moved to Portland specifically to work at Outside In. Um, I wanted to work, I wanted to live in a city that had a really strong harm reduction program and preferably one that was run by a woman. And I landed with that at Outside In. So I, Moved to Portland, started volunteering less than a month after I moved here and had a paid position less than two months after that. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. <Quick. laughs> and I've been there ever since. So yeah. I've, I'm, I feel very, very lucky um, for people that don't know Outside In. Outside In is a nonprofit here in Portland, Oregon. Um, the agency's been around for over 50 years. Um, we serve homeless youth and other homeless folks, providing primary health care, housing services, drop-in services, education services. Um, we also run, and the program that I run is the third oldest legal syringe exchange in the United States. Wow. We just had our 30th birthday last month, which is really cool. Um, there's very few programs that have been around as long as us. And yeah, we've I've seen a lot of changes since yeah. I started this work. I bet. Uh, yeah. You know, I know, well, here in Portland, uh, you know, the opioid epidemic is talked about so much, but we also forget meth, mm -hmm. especially here in Portland. Yes, uh, that's, we do. that's a big one. Um, so obvious question, why are, uh, why are federally funded needle exchange programs um, important? Oh, federally funded. That well, I makes assume. So actually, it's only been a few years that we've been able to use any oh. federal funds for syringe exchange. Really? Just a few years? When yes. did that take effect? Under what administration? Oh, is it like really recent, like two years or five years? It has not been under the current administration. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's probably been the last five years. Okay, so okay. it was in, I think, 89. They put the ban on using federal funds for syringe exchange in place. It was lifted briefly in 2010 for like six months to a year mm. and then was re put in place. And then I, it was in the Obama administration that they finally lifted it. However, we're still not allowed to use federal funds to purchase syringes. Really? So we can pay, you, we can use federal funds for staffing. We can use federal funds sure. for space, things like that. But we can't actually buy the supplies that we So supplies, does that come from, you know, just like, I guess, private donations that come into outside in? Or is it through grants, so different grants, state grants? or We are so lucky that Multnomah County Health Department has funded us since the beginning. Wow. Um, so we actually primarily operate on county funds okay. um, currently between Multnomah County and Clackamas County um, to run our program. We have some state funds that come through the county as well, but mm -hmm. we actually don't use any federal funds in our program. Um, our medical clinic is federally funded. Yeah. We are a federally funded healthcare center, but um, we've always kept those funds very separate Sure, because of the federal funding, man. Okay. Now, is that kind of the same uh, as like Central City that, you know, kind of those, how this, the health center works? 
in terms of like being federally funded, like under a certain act. They're called FQHCs, federally qualified health. Is centers. that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's the same. Yeah. Same thing. Okay. It's, on, it's a part of HRSA. It's like big national program to okay. provide health care for underserved <laughs> communities. Okay. So back to the, I'll just uh, take out the federally funded part, but uh, why are needle exchange programs important in our community? Because I'll, I'll, I'll actually, I'll, uh, sorry to cut you off before you talk. What I will say, um, so as we mentioned before the, po or I talked to you before the podcast, I was someone, I was never against uh, uh, needle exchange, but mm -hmm. you know, for me, I would, uh, before my brother's death, I would say I was always for, you know, um, I guess probably due to the stigma and stuff, I would always say, well, why are we enabling drug users? Yeah. Um, you know, why are we giving them free needles? Uh, why are we handing out nalox and all that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. um, you know, why are we using county funds or state funds for that? Yeah. You know, what's going on? Um, again, that's, uh, you know, my mind uh, uh, has shifted, you know, my thoughts have shifted a total 180 mm -hmm. <laughs> through education. So that's why I bring it up is, you know, kind of going through these harm reduction steps, you know, why are these important uh, to each community throughout the nation? Yeah. So I would say, I mean, there's so many reasons why they're important across the board. Mm -hmm. If we talk about harm reduction services from like the public health perspective where they really started, right? They, they started as like a public health intervention to reduce HIV. We knew that HIV was being spread through shared needle use. And so providing people enough needles that they didn't have to share meant mm -hmm. people were less likely to get infected and th thus less likely to infect their partners who may or may not be using, right? And so that was really the impetus was this public health, we need to stop the, H the spread of HIV, let's prevent it by making sure people don't have to share needles. Mm -hmm. Then hepatitis C came on the scene and we talked about HIV and hepatitis C prevention. Um, and so like the public health part of it is very much about preventing the spread of disease, preventing people from getting sick and dying, naloxone the same, preventing the death from the overdose. Mm -hmm. And that stuff is very important. Um, but I think some of the, like, the collateral that comes from harm reduction services is probably more powerful and more helpful. So by welcoming people who are using drugs and who are being shunned by the community, in general, and who are walking through the world with this shame and guilt because of the stigma associated with mm -hmm. drug use by welcoming them in yeah, and giving them a space to be honest mm -hmm. without judgment, giving them a space to like get education and learn about how to keep themselves safe, how to improve their communities, how to improve their health is like this magical thing that happens where people who may not engage with anyone else mm -hmm. starts to build some trusting relationships yeah. and some power. And that's when people have the space to like change their lives and do what they need to do. And so for me, like the most wonderful part about harm reduction is being able to connect with humans who most aren't even trying to connect mm -hmm. with and like bringing them in and giving up like, I mean, I tell people I hug drug users for a living, <laughs> right? <laughs> because I probably give out like a hundred hugs a day. Yeah. Um, and, and having that space and like creating that power, both for the individual to change their 
lives and their health is so important. Mm -hmm. And even if they're using, we don't want them to die. And like just that message that we care about you, whether you use or not, whether you like are interested in not using anymore or not, you are worthy of love and I'm going to love you Mm -hmm. just the way you are without you changing Mm -hmm. helps people want to change and be healthier. Yeah. Totally. And addiction is a long-term illness and you keep them in the game in the short term so that eventually they can get there in the long term. If they're dead, they can't. And it takes a long time to get there Mm -hmm. sometimes. So that makes total sense. It's also, we know that substance use disorder is relapsing, right? Of course it is. So we're also a safety net for folks who are relapsing. I had a conversation with a client just earlier today who he had two years and just lost his housing and is using again. And while he was walking through with some like shame and fear yeah. and he came in the, but he came in the door, mm-hmm. right? That's a big step. He came in the door and like when he's like, yeah, I'm going to use for the first time in two years. I'm like, okay, let's like, do you want to talk about it? Yeah. When the answer was yes, it's like, okay, now let's evaluate what is this a decision you're making or is this an impulse you're acting on? Like, and we had a hour long conversation just about like, you're going to do what you're going to do when you leave. How are we going to make sure you're safe? Mm -hmm. Are you sure this is what the decision you want to make? Yeah. What's your plan going forward? You know, and just holding that space for him where I wasn't trying to like talk him out of it, but I also wanted to help him think through that. Mm -hmm. Like, you're saying you're just going to use today and not tomorrow. Like, great. How are you going to do that? What, yeah. like, what do you need to put in place to have that be your reality? And whether he used or not, I don't know whether he called his sponsor, which is something he suggested he might do instead. I will never know. Yeah. But I know that in that moment, he took the space and the time to like, have that pause button hit and like that's that's big it's important that's something that's been instilled in me through recovery is the concept that you're talking about of playing the tape forward thinking about what's going to happen the Mm -hmm. consequences of your actions and that's so you can't just tell people hey quit stop you stop using drugs right they have to come to that their own conclusion Mm -hmm. on it um and allow somebody to like you said the space and the time to think about it Mm -hmm. because they have to have internal buy-in on a very deep spiritual level in order to like proceed, you know? I mean, I think that's true of anything, right? Like I think in general, humans are going to do what humans are going to do. Right. I think people with substance use disorders (laughs) in particular have some impulse things that are a little different, Um, but in just maybe a few, (laughs) I don't want to speak for everyone. Um, Everyone's different. I'm not putting anything on it, but like impulse is something that's really hard for folks. And so, you know, I think having that space and like he knew he could walk in and tell me, yeah, I'm planning to use. And I wasn't going to try and pressure him out of it. Mm -hmm. I was going to make sure he had the tools and like creating that space where he knew it was always safe to come back. Yeah. Like there's, and it's that safety net, right? Like, ha- like he left with naloxone just in case. Mm-hmm. You're using a realistic framework too, because you're realizing that in order to succeed, there has to be a lot of failures along the way. Mm-hmm. So you set up an operating system where failure isn't negative, and in fact, you can learn mm-hmm. from your failure, mm-hmm. which increases the long-term chances of success. That's I a mean, great point. I don't even use the word failure, right? Because you can't 
fail. Yeah. Unless you die. Yeah. Right. And yeah, so that's true. like it really is about you're like it's not as black and white as and that's part that's the other thing I love about harm reduction. It's not black and white. It's messy as F. Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this <laughs> or not. It's messy as Okay. It's messy as fuck. And so like I like that messy. I like to be in that messy. I like to be like help te- like I'm that person that like likes the jewelry box full of like tangled necklaces mm-hmm. that I can like pick apart. Um and when people's lives are messy, like being able to be there with them in yeah. that and having that be okay. It's okay that it's messy. It's reality. Yeah. Life is messy. <laughs> yeah. And so like just being able to help people sort through some of that mess and like figure out what their priorities are and then centering those priorities. Right. It's not about like keeping people using drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. I would work myself out of a job in a heartbeat if I could. (laughs) Right. In a heartbeat. I would love to like be in a situation where no one ever needs naloxone ever again. And that everyone Mm -hmm. had all the things that they need until we end capitalism, white supremacy, and the patriarchy, we're not going to be dealing with that world. <laughs> um, so in the meantime, it's like, how do we help people be safe, smart, aware, making decisions in ways that are like most appropriate for them? And where that ends up, just coming in is taking care of yourself, right? Yeah. Like even if someone, I have clients who've been shooting drugs for 30, 40, 50 years who don't have hepatitis and don't have HIV who like function, go to work, live Mm -hmm. their lives. Right. And that is, and they're taking care of themselves in that. I don't think most people actually see the carnage of addiction. You know, I've, like I said, I've been in all these places and it just so happens that a a very large percentage of the people there have hepatitis C. That's one of the most Mm -hmm. common things, HIV. You really do see it all if you're around all those people Mm -hmm. because it's ever present. And therefore, that's why you're pushing harm reduction. Yeah, I just, I mean, again, like I hold like the the theory of harm reduction and the like practice of harm reduction kind of set. like there's a public health practice where it's like, literally, I don't want people to get infected with diseases. I want to help them get their diseases cured and treated if they have them. I want to provide those like mm-hmm. concrete. I want to make sure people who are using opiates have naloxone in their hands. I want to have those concrete things. And I also want the like building up of community. I would say there is no more beautiful community actually and more giving community than the drug using community. I mean, we've had thousands of people reverse overdoses, half of which are on strangers. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, that's cool. Like I give out a lot of naloxone Mm -hmm. and the 99% of the reversal reports I've gotten have been from people who use drugs. No, that's, that, I, that, I was reading that report, I think is based on your program, the Naloxone program, where was, if I'm, I could be exaggerating here, but over 2000 overdoses have been reversed mm-hmm. through, just through the outside in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like, you know, and again, the way I say it is, you know, like we talked about, you know, just a few minutes ago was, you know, you can't recover if you're dead. And, you know, for me, that's ever so important because my brother doesn't have a chance for that anymore. You know, and it's uh, that hits home the most. And I think 
you know, when I see that, I just go, you know, it just, you're, everyone's kind of in their own bubble in life. You know, we mm-hmm. just kind of keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I know I was, um, you know, I'm guilty of that for sure. And, but when you see the end result of addiction, it's like, you just start wanting to, to help everyone. So no other parent or sibling or loved one or friend mm-hmm. has to go to a funeral. Yeah. Cause it's, it's not necessary. It really isn't. Mm-mm. And I said to you earlier, your brother was heroic. He was fighting the battle. Um, he was heroic. He died in the line of duty, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really important to know. Yeah. But then again, it's like you hear this and people go, well, why are we using funds to to provide, you know, free naloxone? Well, there you go. Over 2,000 people are still alive mm-hmm. because it, of that. 2,000 yeah. people. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not that hard to think about. It's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I think we, without harm, like there was a report that came out of, I think, Toronto recently, Mm -hmm. a paper out of Toronto, looking at, they modeled how many people would have died had there not been harm reduction. Like, because we get this thing, like, we have harm reduction. Why why are people still dying, right? But how many people would how many more people mm-hmm. would go yeah. if it was, wasn't for these tools being available. And I, I don't want to quote numbers cause I really don't remember, that's, but it was like twice as many people. Yeah. That's what I read. Like, uh, cause like what latest data from 2017 was mm-hmm. like, you know, 72,000 people. And then without harm reduction, they kept saying by like 2022 or 23, it was going to be like upwards of like 85 to 90,000 people a year. Mm-hmm. And so you start now, you know, we see this, we start seeing the crackdown on, on ridiculous prescriptions for opioids, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, you broke your wrist. Here's, uh, you know, two refills of 30, you know, uh, Vicodin or mm-hmm. Oxycontin, whatever, you know, that stuff, that's wonderful. But then you also start seeing the distribution of naloxone, um, mm-hmm. throughout the country. Yep. That's big, uh, fentanyl testing strips, what I want, which I want to get into soon as well. Cause okay. I don't understand how those are not, uh, Part and parcel of the recovery world. Yeah. Like I, we give them out. Yeah I, I, yeah. I saw that. I was like, thank God, because there was uh, something to do with, because they're under, um, I could be again, mixing this up, but because they're under a research category or something that you can't sell them or, or whatever. It's like, there, it's just an off label use for them. They're a urine drugs. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so testing so drugs. It's more like legality then yeah. if anything, oh. yeah. but it works. Yeah, they were yeah, fine. Yeah. They've been validated by a study out of Hopkins and Brown. Well, that's not enough. The, the, forecast, <laughs> the forecast study validated yeah. them for fentanyl yeah. and for use in the way we're using them. So yeah. it's not like they're we're making up science here. Yeah. Um, but I will add that it was like drug users who came up with that idea, right? It was people actually using, being like, what's out there that yeah. can like Kill help, at least like let us know a little more. Yeah. I feel like people are so focused on perfection, but mm-hmm. they need to focus on the two words. They're quite simple. Harm reduction, not yeah. elimination, you yeah. know? So it's almost like to, you have to explain that to people because they don't understand that. And I don't mean you personally. I just mean, you <laughs> I know, understand like, <laughs> the information needs to get out there to people. Yeah. I mean, I think we think about life as very black and white, mm-hmm. right? It's like you're doing a thing or you're not doing a thing. Yeah. Um, and that's not all that realistic. Um, and in general, people practice harm reduction every single day. Like all of us, like normies, drug users, we're all like, I put my seatbelt on yep. every time I get in the car. Tie your shoes. Right. I yeah, exactly. don't walk out into traffic. I make sure yeah. I stop and look before moving forward. Right. And like, 
those are things that I do to like protect myself and to reduce the risk. Driving a car is a real dangerous Right. You got to think about that. <laughs> yeah. It's, Every single day you're going down the highway at 60 miles an hour, trusting other people to stay in their own lane. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a dangerous activity. Yeah. And so there are things that we, we and we have policies in place mm. to make it less dangerous as well. Yeah. Right. We have speed limits, mm. speed bumps, guardrails, mm. all those things are harm reduction interventions mm. that we engage with. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think I like your point that we shouldn't be looking at prevention because it's not abstinence or use. It's a huge spectrum. And I'm really grateful that especially the the recovery community used to really hate harm reductionists. And it's why is that? uh, It makes total sense. It's because of where it's uh, came from, you know, the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous tradition. It all comes from that. That's why. Yeah. I mean, it was condoning drug use. It, the, oh, because they're not abstinent. Because they're not yeah, abstinent. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. It's the, you got to hit rock, rock yeah. bottom in order to like get better kind of yeah. ideas. Um, and luckily, and I'm really grateful that it's definitely changing. I mean, I actually teach naloxone classes at two of the local recovery houses wow. once a month. Like I do like publicly facing anyone can come yeah. naloxone trainings at the That's Alano great. club. And I'm starting this month at 4d monthly doing okay. trainings over there. And so that's the fourth dimension recovery center. Yes. Mm-hmm. Youth recovery center. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, I mean, it's, that would have never happened five years ago. Yeah. Honestly, I know because I asked, (laughs) (laughs) right? And so, you know, I think it's really important to acknowledge that change is happening. Mm -hmm. And this idea of like black and white, one or the other is, is we're starting to like embrace the gray a little bit more now than we used to. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where people who were on medication to treat their substance use disorders, so Suboxone or Methadone, weren't allowed to speak at 12-step meetings. <laughs> like, Are they allowed now? They, yeah. In most, I mean, it depends yeah. on the meeting. Sure. But yeah, it's really a l- very different now yeah. in how... That's very amazing to me. The next step will be cannabis for them. Really. I mean, that's a form of harm reduction in and of itself, too. Oh. And then AA looks down upon that and says, oh... Uh, I forget their phrase, but essentially just accuse you for being trading one addiction for sure. another yep. kind of a thing. And yep. you're like, wait a second, man, I used to drink me personally, <laughs> 30 drinks a day, like a half gallon of vodka a day. Now I smoke a little bit of pot at night. I'm a year sober. I've lost 40 pounds and my health is great. What's wrong with smoking pot? Yeah. I mean, the number of times a week I say, does pot help? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like it's one of those things that it, like it doesn't for everyone. Like I sure. A, I don't touch marijuana because it makes me paranoid. Yeah. Um, Smoke indicas. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I'm, I'm, like it's all, it's just, it's not my jam. Yeah. Um, I like my drugs to start wearing off as soon as I stop doing them. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be high for all day. Um, but funny. it's true though. Um, <laughs> no legs for Haven. Um, you know, you said something earlier that I thought was so illustrative for the listeners. I made the point as an alcoholic, like, oh my God, why don't we have any harm reduction for alcoholics? And you simply said to me, we already have them. They're called bars. (laughs) And that's so true, right? Mm -hmm. Great point. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So bars are places where people go 
to consume what arguably is probably one of the more dangerous drugs we have. It's bad. It's terrible for it. Like so many more people die from alcohol than other substances. Mm -hmm. Some of that's weird death data skewing stuff. So I always have to point that out. You can't really compare alcohol related deaths to drug related deaths. Because you're doing drunk driving and all these other things. Correct. Um, Whereas drug overdoses are just drug poisonings um, for the most part. But I like that drug poisoning. I don't, no one says that. I say it. I know. That's why I'm pointing it out. It's it's smart. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so alcohol is a very dangerous drug and people consume it a lot here in Oregon, more than Mm. a lot of places. It's very much culturally accepted. And we do it in consumption spaces where you go into a bar, you order a drink. If you order too many drinks, you're dealing with a sober human being who is trained to identify drunkenness Mm -hmm. and to do interventions to help reduce the harms of that drunkenness, whether that's calling you a cab, taking your keys, Mm -hmm. giving you a sandwich and some water. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like those are things that we do to reduce the harms of alcohol use and we do them regularly. Um, Because in, we were trying to prevent drunk driving Mm -hmm. and with drugs, we're trying to permit, prevent uh, the spread of a disease. They're different, but they're really the same kind of. I mean, we're trying to reduce the harms of drug use. And one great way to do that, especially around alcohol, is separate. Like driving cars is really dangerous. Drinking alcohol is really dangerous. But when they're together, they're exponentially more dangerous. So keeping them separate is harm reduction. And and I've heard of um, different uh, localities legalizing alcohol 24 Mm seven with the thought process. You obviously know this, that it'll reduce harm because not everyone will get on the road right at the same time at night, trying Mm -hmm. to make it home at closing time. So it'll actually allow people to filter out. I thought that was kind of a smart thing. Yeah. I also, while I don't necessarily love the criminal justice involvement in what I'm about to say, I also think like the breathalyzers that uh, drunk drivers sometimes get put on their cars so that they have to blow into a breathalyzer before you can start the car. Yeah. Like that's brilliant. It's a brilliant harm reduction tool. Yeah. um, Because it allows, I mean, I don't think that it allows people to make, well, in this case, not make a decision to do something foolish. But I was in a bar in Seattle last year where they actually had a breathalyzer on the wall. You could drop a quarter into it. Yeah, take people kind of do it for fun, but it also can show you. Oh, yeah. I dropped a lot of money in that thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't planning to, dr- I wasn't driving, but, yeah, um, but I, you know, like to me, that's a brilliant harm reduction tool because especially with alcohol where your judgment gets mm-hmm. real skewed pretty quickly yeah. and because the social context makes it easy to like lose track of where you're at yeah it's similar to like the drug checking and the fentanyl that you get to check where you're at mm-hmm. and make better decisions based on that so you know like uh so with harm reduction of course there's going to be you know come um you know additional needles out in the streets mm-hmm. um so i know here in portland uh you know now nationally you know um people know that when they come here, you know, they're going to see the homeless um, on the streets. They're going to see the trash. They're going to, mm-hmm. you know, see the needles that's ever become ever so popular, you know, as the the picture of Portland. And, you know, gr- being born and raised here, that's really sad because that's not how it was growing up. 
It uh, wasn't. I was born and raised here too. Yeah. <laughs> I moved here 13 years ago and it wasn't like yeah, this. No, yeah. it's, it's really happened in the last eight years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it really, it just in a really short span. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I kind of blame Portlandia, but, um, <laughs> yeah, for drawing everyone yeah. here. <laughs> well, I mean, on some level, maybe, yeah. but, uh, you know, and so we're out there, you know, and I, and I understand where this comes from, from the general public. We're going, well, well, gosh, you know, here we have a beautiful city yet where we have to hire all these additional people to go out and clean up this mess now mm-hmm. that is caused by additional needles on the streets because they're free. They're given out all that. So w- what is your counter to those people? You know, that it does get frustrating. Um, yeah, you it know, does. And, yeah. First and foremost, we take in as many needles as we give out. Like Last month, I took in more needles than I gave out. And how, how uh, many needles per month, or I guess yearly, do you do you? Uh, Last provide? year, we were well over a million wow. syringes that we exchanged. Now, is that and that's in how Mal- many we, Multnomah County? That's our syringe exchange. Not That doesn't include the syringe exchange run by Multnomah County, who took, I think, combined, we probably hit five million. Lo- lo- wait, just like one location of outside in? Is, no, it's all, oh. it's all of our sites, but our downtown site is definitely our busiest okay. site. So, so people know... Um, how, what is it like for the average user in terms of how many needles do they go mm. through in a day, certain periods of time, so they can kind of have context for why we need so many? Yeah. So there's a couple things to think about in that. And depending on what drugs you're using, you may be injecting more often. Mm-hmm. So um, someone who's using heroin may be injecting maybe f- three to seven times a day. Wow. Um and if you have been injecting for a while, it may be very hard to actually access your veins. So you'll end up, want, like I have clients who will go through five needles to get one shot. Jesus. Um, just because needles get damaged really quickly. Sure. You can't reuse, they're not designed to be reused. Um, and so people will often be using multiple needles throughout the day. Um, if someone was like injecting cocaine, for instance, they could be doing 30, 40, 50 shots a day. I was kind of going to ask about that. Maybe the breakdown between uh, heroin, meth and like amphetamines being injected. Like, is it mo- mostly heroin needle for the needles or is it meth? Like it's both. So sorry, were you no, done? I didn't no. mean to interrupt. You're not um, interrupting. So when I first moved here, Our clients at the syringe exchange here were about 50-50 heroin and methamphetamines. And the two populations didn't like each other at all. (laughs) Like, it was really intense. And we actually, at one point, like, talked about creating two separate syringe exchanges. One for people using methamphetamines and one for people using heroin. It's a really different wavelength. Because the way the drugs impact them and everything. Yeah, like, I mean, opiates are like... Yeah, a downer. Real chill. Yeah. Real yeah, chill, I saw a guy nodding quiet. off today down by the Target downtown. Yeah. yeah, real chill, real quiet. Um, as long as they have what when they're on it. When yeah. they're not on it, things get a little messier. Um, when people are sick, things get a little messier. Sure. Um, methamphetamines are very active. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so, and it there, there was just a very big cultural difference between the two um, groups of folks, and they just were never very nice to each other. However, now about 80% of our clients are injecting both heroin and methamphetamines. And so it's created this weird shift in that whole animosity where the people using meth didn't like the people who are using heroin. That's gone now because they're all using all of it. 
to be honest. I noticed that when I was in treatment, a, sw- a switch where it was heroin only for a while or meth only for people. And then everyone, it was like a combo stack that everyone started mm-hmm. doing dead seriously because it, they balance each other out in mm-hmm. some respects. So you get tired with the opiates and the meth brings you up and then the opiates bring you down from well, the I can understand, And like, they get lost in that little yeah, cycle. Yeah, like meth here in Portland, just because of the cold nights, you know, from what I've read is people use meth to stay up during the cold nights, mm-hmm. to, you know, keep moving, be warm, yeah. things of that nature. A lot of women use it for safety. If you're living outside, mm, that makes sense. that's wow. really common. Like women will tell me like, oh, I don't usually use meth, but my partner is in jail right now. So I'm going to stay up until he gets released. Wow. Right. Um, Because it's scary to sleep on the streets by yourself. Sure. Right. As a woman, it's more scary to sleep on your streets. Um, And so, yeah, you hear that a lot. I think some of it probably has to do with drug markets. I'm guessing Mm. just like it's too big of a switch too quickly for there not to be some systematic thing happening Mm -hmm. in play. I don't want to. I'm not an expert on drug markets and drug cartels. But it's like anytime a whole bunch of people do the same thing at the same time, it's probably bigger. Well, the deal- than- dealers are offering both under the uh, direction of the cartel ultimately is what's happening because they have, um, you know, affiliates in different states like Chicago, for example, is huge for the Sinaloa cartel. And I'm sure they give them the orders to do that. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily trickle down to the street, though. Like, I think, I mean, all the dealers I know, like aren't ever talking to anyone that actually works with the cartel. It's all trickled. And so so, keep going. But, but I think that if, you know, cartels that historically only dealt in one, like cartels that only dealt in one substance started dealing in two and they have easy transport. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. And I also, I also think that that's probably why we see things like, the West Coast primarily using methamphetamines, whereas like when I was working in an exchange back in New York, yeah. we didn't have any meth. Yeah. And like the year I moved out, like it, I had, it was a steep learning curve to learn mm-hmm. the difference between cocaine and methamphetamines. What happened with uh, meth and everything here in Oregon in particular is they cracked down on it so much in the black market. They made it impossible for small time people to do it here in Portland because mm-hmm. you had to get the cough medicine and everything behind the counter. Mm -hmm. So then who could make it? Mm -hmm. Oh, guess what? The cartels can, because they don't have to abide by the law. So that's what happened. And then meth became a huge business and they have super labs where they make it and everything. And that's how all the meth gets on the streets. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And so (laughs) I don't know what I was just going to say. So there's that. You you were talking about, um, you don't know anyone who's really uh, talks about cartels and stuff. And that's how it got off. And I, I was thinking of an episode I saw of Drugs Incorporated on on Portland. And they mm-hmm. interviewed a, like a bunch of different dealers and stuff. And I heard this term I had never heard before. And they kept saying, if you want to like succeed or whatever ling- lingo it was, you have to have a quote, good Mexican. And that was the language. And they went and visited mm-hmm. them in the cartels in the episode. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was kind of curious yeah, about it. Yeah, they tried to get me to do that episode and I told them no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You would have been good on it, dude. Uh, yeah, I don't. How much is that is real versus propaganda? Mm, both. Both. I think it's both. Yeah. I mean, I knew people interviewed for that yeah. episode and they straight up told me that's not what they said. So mm. um, that they were. Because it's, yeah, I mean, like they, they come off and it's like. I mean, it's a television show. They're yeah. trying to like That's sell what I was trying to like understand is how much is that is 
propaganda versus reality. I mean, yeah, I think when we're talking about anything that's illegal, you got to yeah. be real careful. And yeah. like, there's so much, there's so much we don't know when mm -hmm. we're talking about things like how cartels work. Mm -hmm. Anyone who actually under says they understand that is probably a cop or a lawyer <laughs> and probably don't. Is there a oh. lawyer here? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I forgot that bit. Um, but you know, hey, I, everybody needs a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not opposed. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think that really like understanding how it all works yeah. is just so much messier than anything we really mm -hmm. know. Um, I'm sure there are people who are. That's why I'm really attracted to your thought process because um, you and I probably approach things differently, but you approach it from the abstract and theoretical level a lot. And I think about that too with law. Mm -hmm. So I, a lot of times people might perceive me as being black and white, but I'm really more of the gray. Mm -hmm. And that's why harm reduction makes sense to me as a concept, even if it might not match a lot of the other ideas that I have. Right. It uniquely has a certain spot. I've noticed it started reading about it in college and it made sense to me because it's realistic. Yeah, that's yeah. the whole point. Like, what's the point of a public policy if it's dog sure. shit and it's not going to work? <laughs> you have to be realistic. And it is. I mean, and that's I talk about this a lot, like when I'm doing my like home reduction 101 talks is that like, you know, if miraculously we got a magic wand mm -hmm. that would end substance use disorder. Yep. Right. Like if we had that magic wand, it would still take time for me to run around this damn city and touch everyone on the head with it. Yeah. And in that time, people would die. Right. Even if we created all the treatment beds that we actually mm -hmm. need, all the access, if we ended the stigma against yeah. drugs, if we, even if we did all of that, it's going to take time to build that infrastructure. Yep. And in that time, people are going to die. Like we have to, what I love about harm reduction is like, I am fighting damn hard to increase access to treatment, mm -hmm. right? I am all for creating real evidence-based prevention programs so people aren't developing substance use disorders. Sure. I am all about all of those things. And is we can work upstream as much as we want, but we can't leave the people in the stream to die. Yeah. It's so important too for all of us to work as a team mm -hmm. here in Portland. It's, it should be a hundred percent nonpartisan thing for all of us to work together on this. I mean, we are, it's, this is the third year in a row that life expectancy in the United yeah. States has dropped. Mm -hmm. That hasn't happened since world war two and the Spanish flu. Yeah. Like it's tragic. 30 year in a row too. 30 year. Last time it's dropped three years in a row was Spanish yeah. flu and world war. II. Yeah. And so, you know, so uh, to your, you know, we're, as you were just mentioning about treatment and, and an article I just read recently, and I, I can't remember which uh, medical journal, which was very interesting though, is, is the perception though of recovery. Mm -hmm. um, even if we reduce the stigma around addiction and we create this huge infrastructure of treatment and recovery and all this stuff, it's, it wouldn't work unless the perception, the people who are suffering need uh need to understand you know understand that they need to go into treatment and so they go okay well wonderful we have this huge you know huge infrastructure now of of beds and everybody can go in but they wouldn't be filled because the perception of of people who are actually using not thinking they're you know they have an addiction issue and that hmm. was very that was a very interesting perspective because i never thought of that because usually you're like oh well they have an issue they want beds boom go but i know like for my brother just like for my personal case it's like 
he he did not think he had an issue. And I think there's probably mm-hmm. millions of people in America. What there's 20 plus million people with a substance use disorder right now. Oh. I mean, I'm just, I don't want to throw numbers out, but I would assume the majority of them think they don't have an issue. So I have a skewed sample set, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm dealing in the syringe exchange with people who are injecting drugs. Yeah. It is a rare day. And so like people don't start off injecting, Mm -hmm. right? It's not like... Wake up out of bed and throw the syringe in your arm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like (laughs) even people like who are using traditionally injectable medications like heroin, mm. like start off smoking it, yep. snorting it, eating it. Jesus. Um, and so one of my favorite quotes about addiction that I've ever heard was something along the lines of addiction is the one disease where you continually will say, I'm only going to use until this happens and then you do mm. it and then you set a different bar. Right. Yep. And so it's like, I, I'm using drugs, but I don't steal. Yeah. Until you steal. Oh, I'm, I'm going to use heroin, but I'm never going to shoot it. Mm. And then you shoot it. And then you yeah. shoot it. Right. And so the good old slippery slope. Yeah. And I think, It's just so, so for my folks, right? Mm -hmm. The folks I'm working with, they all know that they've, that things are, things are messy in their lives. Right. Um, I was the most common conversation I have in the syringe exchange is about treatment. It's about access to treatment. Mm -hmm. It's about what treatment options are. Um, I mean, like what's available, what's not available. How can I help them connect to them? Like, and I was at just at Hooper detox, local detox center, Mm -hmm. um, yesterday doing a presentation. Was that only yesterday? Um, and there was a guy in the lobby waiting to get into detox who I have literally had a conversation about detox with for two months straight. Wow. Like every time he came in, he's like, what's, what's the deal with detox? What's the deal with detox? Like, yeah, he was really ambivalent. And like, and like, he was like, I know you're sick of talking to me about this. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm literally not. The fact that you want to talk about it is perfect. If you never act on it and you just want to talk about it for the next six months, let's talk about it for the next six months. Right. And you know, that space. So detox is a harm reduction concept, kind of. And if you're in detox, it gives you the space that you talked about earlier to think through your actions and ultimately kind of decide a better path. Is that in a way? I mean, so not using drugs is the safest way to use drugs, (laughs) right? Like you're not going to like not, not using is safer than using. I I guess I'm thinking of it like the first stumbling block to get over in recovery is to get into the detox. You may not necessarily make it successfully through your first, second, third, fourth or 20th one. But the fact that you got there, that's the initial buy in. So you move it to like you're playing a video game. You're into the next level and you have to keep going up. But getting into that detox is to me, it was so helpful. Right. And I think I think in general it is. I think you have to be really careful with that, though, because your risk of dying of an overdose goes up when you stop using. Right. So that's a really important thing to mention to people listening because as an alcoholic, I can go out and drink after being in the detox and I'm not going to die. But with opiate addicts, their tolerance has gone down Mm -hmm. and they think that they can still handle the same amount. Right. Yeah. Well, I shoot up and that's kind of how sometimes how it happens or. So 
when you don't use your tolerance drops and that's true for most substances mm-hmm. right like if you went out and had a beer tonight it's you're not going to be able to drink the same amount you could drink before <laughs> right because your tolerance is lower um the problem is is that when your tolerance drops like that you are at a greater risk for overdose death i push back on this idea that people get out and use the same amount they used before mm-hmm. Um, people who use drugs are real smart Mm -hmm. and they're really like, I, I can't think of a single time that someone has been like, I just got out of jail. I'm going to do the same amount I've always done. They know they need to do less, but math is really hard. (laughs) And knowing how, like, how much did your tolerance drop? And you don't know what's in the shit you have anyway. And what? Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. like the doing that, like calculation on, do I, do half as much as I did before? Mm. Do I do a quarter as much? Do I do an eighth as much? Yeah. It's a really complicated thing when you have variables like street drugs that yep. you don't actually know the potency of. When you're having a drug market that's more and more being contaminated with fentanyl or street fentanyl makes it more complicated. Yeah. And your own biology makes it all so much more complicated. So you're right on everything. I just, that one, it's like this pet peeve of mine where people are like, <laughs> They just don't know. It's like drug users know some stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, but basically having that uh, tolerance reduced just makes them more susceptible with the unknown yeah. mm-hmm. it, it, because their immunity, i.e. their tolerance is yeah. down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was just a report out of Multnomah County Jail that your likelihood of dying of an overdose um, in the first two weeks after being released from jail is 15 times higher than if you were never incarcerated. Jesus. It's so hard too to watch people weighing that decision you're talking about mm-hmm. while you're in detox and they're up at the front desk making a fit and get my shit together. I can't tell you how many people I've seen. They do the same thing every mm-hmm. time. Get my fucking shit together right goddamn now. I'm leaving this place. I'm leaving this place. And they throw a huge fit and stuff and then they go out and something like that might happen. Yeah. So it's hard mm-hmm. as someone in recovery watching one of your... Um, comrades really i mean you're on the same team go out like that it's tough to watch that yeah and i think so i mean i think being brave enough to take those first steps that's totally harm reduction and i think but i think focusing on detox especially with people with opiate use disorders Mm -hmm. is kind of risky um and it's a double-edged sword like if someone tells me they want to go to detox i'm all about it I'm also going to spend a bunch of time talking to them about stuff that actually is proven to like help with substance use disorders as well as protect them from overdose. So like being on methadone is a huge way to reduce your risk of overdose death. Mm -hmm. Being on Suboxone, they're much more effective in terms of having that overdose prevention tool in there. Also encouraging detox facilities to make sure people are leaving with naloxone. Yeah. Right. And like, and actually talking to folks in part of their like relapse prevention stuff about harm reduction and the importance of harm reduction while talking about like relapse prevention tools. Um, so sorry, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Okay. Uh, so over the last, since you've been outside in for the 13 years, how has it, how has the whole scene here in Portland changed? In the most bittersweet ways possible. Um, I mean, I think our current housing crisis and our current substance use disorder crisis are conflating in a way that is really hard for me to watch. 
Um, if you can, okay, can you uh, can you uh, expand on that a little? Yeah, I mean, I think. I think I know what you mean. I think I agree with you. I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I think we have we have an expanding substance use disorder issue, right? And with the way our drug markets are changing, it's become more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that on its own is re- it's really hard to watch. It's really hard to see people I love die and people I care for die. Um, both from overdose, from strokes, heart attacks, from exposure, from skin and soft tissue infections, endocarditis, osteomyelitis, which we're seeing a huge increase in yeah. over in, the last Endocarditis, years. is that a heart infection from uh, an infected needle? Does it come from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bacterial infection that um, sets into the lining of your heart. I had a, a girl in my last rehab that had it, and she mm-hmm. had to go back to the hospital. Mm-hmm. She's like on death's door. Jeez. And it came from, she used water out of like a Gatorade bottle mm-hmm. in a tent or something that she didn't know. And that's how she got it. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's just, I mean, and it's not exclusively injection related. People do get endocarditis mm-hmm. that aren't injecting. So I want to make that clear that it's sure. not all injection related endocarditis. But, you know, we, this Oregon Health Authority and I partnered to work on a project to look at injection related skin and soft tissue infections, um, hospitalization rates. And it's just like, a giant J curve up yeah. in terms of like how many infections I've lost five clients to skin and soft tissue infections this year. Wow. Um, and so, and again, that's like a treatable condition. Sure. Like if you catch those and get people the medication, if people weren't afraid to access healthcare yeah. for things like a small skin infection doesn't need to turn into a blood infection, doesn't need to turn into a spinal infection. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think, and I think actually with some of those infections, I think homelessness plays a big part in that, mm-hmm. right? If you can shower every day, yeah. you are less likely to get a skin infection, yep. right? Like just be clean, all, yeah. literally all of us yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. being able to like wash the bacteria yeah. off of you that, you know, like staph infection, humans pretty, we all pretty much carry staph with uh-huh. us all the time. It lives in our sweaty parts. It lives in our nose. Yep. Um, but if you if you can't wash them, you're more likely to spread them. Sure. And so, so with that, and then you have this housing crisis where people can't find housing. Mm-hmm. There's not affordable housing. People are losing their housing, mm-hmm. which leads to like the fuck it's like it leads to this despair and feeling less human and less mm-hmm. judged. And those two things intersect with each other in really complicated ways and i'm going to use this to segue into safe consumption spaces because i believe while there are no legally operated safe consumption spaces happening in the united states right now i believe it's one of the few interventions that we could use and do that would meet that intersection of homelessness and substance use disorder Mm -hmm. i feel like um, people might say oh man that's a big stretch you know how would you ever accomplish that but let's just think about the gravity of the situation it's a basically a war going on and it's terrible and we're losing tons. There's tons and tons of casualties. So eventually you're going to have to just say, speaking of fuck it, fuck it, fuck any like perception, mm-hmm. all of that shit and just go right for it. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree <laughs> with you. I mean, if you think about it this way, like two planes fell out of the sky yeah, and that is tragic. Yeah. And they ground all of them and they're still sitting on the ground. Yeah. Right. Like two planes fell out of the sky. 
my heart goes out to their families. It is tragic. A plane falls out of the sky of drug users every day in the United States. Yeah. Every day. It's important to shape it the way you do and tell it's put these facts out there in the way you frame it because people don't No, seriously, people don't think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, over 130 people a day. Yeah. And it's going to continue for, I don't know how long until things change because I was, you know, when I first started researching, uh, you know, this whole epidemic and you come, ac- you know, you come across safe consumption sites. You know, I, for me, I was so new to all this and I was learning and I was trying to understand everything and I still am still trying to learn mm-hmm. and you come across safe consumption sites and you go, holy shit. Like you're just going to invite users in to just use drugs. Yes, please. Uh, yeah, like that's just like, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, you know, as a person who's not like in the fire every day, you're just kind of like, that is just so so asinine that's but then you start going okay well let's just take a step back here let's uh let's look at the over 200 safe consumption sites around the world how many deaths have they had over the last what 20 plus years they've been in operation 30 83 was the first one to open Um, 83 okay mm -hmm. yeah um yeah no one's died in one since 83 and when i checked (laughs) uh vancouver bc insight Mm -hmm. the the famous one here Mm -hmm. especially in north america they had, was it over 3 million injections basically mm-hmm. every year? Mm-hmm. Not one death. Yep. So, you, you know, so that's my way. I was going to go, well, Jesus. Okay. You get, you get these people who come here and then, oh, by the way, you start meeting people where they're at. You start providing professional resources like, you know, nurses, doctors, mm-hmm. uh, building as you do every day with these people, you build, start, you know, the conversation, build trust with them. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, they can, they, they can get off drugs. We call yeah. them building therapeutic relationships yeah. in quotes. Um. <laughs> in quotes. Yeah. There were air quotes. <laughs> they were there. I just realized yeah. that no one saw me do them, but you guys, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like it feels like such a foreign concept mm-hmm. and like I talk to people about this stuff literally all the time um and it seems like such a stretch but literally the only difference between what i do right now Mm -hmm. in my fixed site needle exchange program and what i would do if it was a safe consumption space literally the only difference is i would provide them tools i would provide them education i would provide them love all the like resources all the things that they need and instead of telling them now go three blocks away and yeah. use on the freeway overpass in the mud where you can't wash your hands, yeah, I would give them a space where they could like, you know, wash their hands yeah. and then like do their drugs. And then if something went sideways, I don't have to run three blocks because my smoking self doesn't like to run <laughs> <laughs> to help like respond to an sure. emergency, Yeah, you know, and literally that's the only difference. Yeah. And you know, like I sit with clients all the time and help them like talk through like how to safely inject because I don't want them getting skin and soft tissue sure. infections. I don't want them injuring themselves further because they don't know what they're doing. And to be able to do that real time with someone, right? Like it's one thing for me to sit down and help someone find access sites and to like talk to them about, but if I could actually be watching how they're injecting and be like, Hey man, if you do it like this, it's going to be safer. Mm-hmm. Like using drugs is really intimate. It's a real, like nobody wants to be using outside, right? Yeah, like yeah. it's, I say this jokingly kind of, but it's kind of like pooping. 
<sighs> like we all would rather poop at home, <laughs> but if we have to use a public restroom, right. we will. Yeah. And truth be told, all of us, if we didn't have access to a public restroom, would poop outside. Yeah. Right. If it, if it got bad enough, you can't help it. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, so bringing people in mm-hmm. makes it safer. Yeah. And People don't want to be using outside. We give people two real options, right? Especially under our criminalized model that we currently live in. We give them the option to use in public and be shamed by their community and risk arrest. Or we ask them to hide Mm -hmm. where if something happens, they might not be found. Yep. Right. And to me, we no, because it's been demonstrated and researched extensively that like providing a space for someone to use in reduces crime, reduces overdose, reduces HIV, mm-hmm. reduces hepatitis, and increases people's chances of accessing recovery services. It and just, also reduces healthcare costs. And reduces healthcare costs. And criminal justice costs. Yep. Like, I mean, it's something that like is such an, like we think of it as being like, whoa, that's so radical. And yet it's not that different Mm -hmm. from what we're already doing. Right. And we've already, we've already accepted here in Portland, syringe exchange has been accepted for a very long time as part like of our health. Not to say there aren't some like wackadoos who yell about the stuff. Sure. Not to say like, I don't spend a lot of time helping to make sure like people understand the whole thing, but it's literally the only difference is whether or not I have to tell someone go three blocks away or yeah. not. Yeah. Right. And the, I have to run because yeah. I, <laughs> I hate running. It's yeah. the only time I, only time I run is if someone's not breathing. Um, and my, I just want to make, uh, I know we have to wrap up here, but for the, you know, we were talking about this, Bobby and I were talking about this earlier today, you know, and you know, one of the more important harm reduction techniques that I've learned uh, over the last year is do not use alone. Mm hmm. And have naloxone on you. Those are, yeah, I mean, those are essentially like the most important. And if people need access to naloxone, um, you can, in Oregon, you can get naloxone at any pharmacy without a prescription. You can just go ask for it. Um, Many insurances will cover it. So Mm -hmm. know that that's a thing. Um, Also, there are free naloxone trainings available through the Alana Club and Fourth Dimension Recovery Center. Cool. That's awesome. It's really important that everybody knows about all this because if I I were if alcohol were illegal and drugs were legal, I would be the one out on the street right now looking for alcohol mm-hmm. and having all the problems. If people just think about it in that way, shift it, the paradigm and the, the framing in their mind, mm-hmm. it'll help them think about the drug problem too. Yeah. They're all drug is a drug is a drug, you know. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is one of them. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for I know we could have gone on for at least another hour, two hours <laughs> about so much more stuff. Uh I truly just have appreciate to have it. Me back. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, there's so much more to talk about, and it's it's wonderful to get everyone's different uh, perspectives. Yeah, so thank, thank you, you so much. much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And thank you for all the work you do in our community. Thanks. Hey everyone, we are really excited here at Henry's Uncle. We have formed a partnership with the Cash App. The Cash App is an app that empowers people to control their own finances. Same here at Henry's Uncle, where we want to empower people to share their own experiences around their addiction. Uh, when you download the Cash App, enter the referral code Henry's Uncle. You get $5, Henry's Uncle gets $5. It's a win-win for everyone. You can download the Cash App on your Apple or Android device.
Thank you for listening to the Henry's Uncle podcast. Please take a second to like, subscribe, or rate us. But more importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who may be interested in the topics discussed so they know they are not alone. As always, at Henry's Uncle, you are loved, never judged.